0: Welcome to episode twenty-five of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, all about that kid from Freehold, Bruce Springsteen. I'm Ray Coob.
1: I'm Marcus in the Darkest,
0: and this is a production of Dark Doc Media. But we have some news, Marcus. Tell the folks what's going on with the Imbalance History.
1: We are now a member of the Pantheon Music Podcast Network.
0: Sweet,
1: I'm stoked.
0: And we thank you all for listening, and you've been the basis of this whole thing, so we're excited. And uh, we'll tell you more about that as we go through the weeks, but they're a cool rock and roll podcast company that we're proud to be a part
1: of. It is an honor to be a part of their team with some of the other music-oriented podcasts that they have. We are thrilled. But
0: I just want folks to know that nothing's going to change about our little imbalance history approach to rock and roll here Uh, On the uh, podcast, things will be the
1: same. I'm glad that they'll be the same too. And that's one of the reasons why we were so interested in working with these cats, is because they respect our creative freedom.
0: And they understand that we're presented to you each and every episode by the good folks at Crooked Eye Brewing, pouring the cure for what ails you in the heart of Hapro since 2014. And we go forward with our episode here. Uh, before we get started, a lot of folks uh, have been checking in with us and uh, giving us really great feedback on the podcast, and we got to thank Paul the Rooster. Uh, he's been listening, a Philly guy who moved back to Ireland, and now, we're, because of his word of mouth, we're number 34 on the podcast list in Ireland. Can you believe that shit? I
1: know. That's pretty cool. Way to go, Rooster. Thank you, Ireland, and please send us emails or hit us on Facebook or Twitter and let us know you're there.
0: Also, thanks to my buddy, Mike Bacon, right here in Philly. Scott Poirier, who's a big supporter of the podcast. Vinny the Crumb, Metal Mike, uh, Jeff Moran from the Crooked Eye Band, and all those guys, of course. And Belinda and Jason Daub from Browns Mills, New Jersey.
1: Also, we got to send a thanks out to Michelle from Vancouver, British Columbia, who is spreading the word on the West yeah. Coast, she sent a note to me on WMMR's text line to say thank you. The podcast listens in Canada are up, eh? Yes, they are. And they I think they when it's cold, they wear toques and listen to their uh, podcast.
0: I know a lot of people have been checking in from areas other than where we're from, the Philadelphia area.
1: We have Bill Campbell from Buffalo who appreciates the music knowledge, but he doesn't, doesn't want to wanna...
0: hear all the Philly talk. But I, all I'm going to say is that on this episode, Bill... <laughs> philly is part of the history so there's going to be philly talk and jersey talk too you know
1: and paul slim from maryland i think he's from maryland as yeah well. cool
0: so we're getting to hear from you guys on our facebook uh, and you can also hit us at imbalance history at gmail.com so bruce
1: springsteen huh I know. Episode 25, and we're talking about The Boss. You know I love it. The research for this episode has made me like The Boss even more than before because I only knew a little bit about his personal life, but playing his music in rock and roll radio for a long time, especially since being here at WMMR, where I've played him more than I've played him anywhere else, it's been a thrill. His his music fits in. It is so American. It is so patriotic. It is so passionate. It is so f- soulful. It has been a blast reading and learning more about who he is. He is the kid from Freehold, and
0: that's where life started for Bruce Springsteen with his family on Randolph Street. Um, in, and I know you've spent time with his book, Born to Run and in the early parts of the book he really does a great job of describing the neighborhood the, the family uh, Catholic Church uh, St. Rose which plays into the story later uh, is right there on the corner uh, he talks about the tribes uh, the Springsteens and, uh, the Ziarelli's I think Zarelli's. Yes. And his mom's side, one one, one
1: on the other corner of the L and they're separated by the Catholic church. That's hilarious. And he
0: paints the picture of the neighborhood he grew up in, which is, if you think about the timing is like 19 late fifties into the Mm -hmm. sixties before the troubles come to our hometown. And, uh, it was just uh, one of those things where he was a kid, just loving life. And, uh, playing with his army men in the roots of the giant tree, he says it's the biggest tree in Freehold at the time. Uh, and they used to play all in the tree. He was the first kid in the neighborhood ever to have the balls to climb all the way up into the upper branches of that tree. Really, and that's the kind of atmosphere that you would think comes from the the the, the early '60s. You know, that that kind of a that kind of an adventurous attitude for life. You know, yeah,
1: he uh lived life really, you know passionately which
0: a lot of passion in that house
1: and he but it was different like his dad was a very irish manly man yes and he got he he seemed to have gotten his passion from his mother and the italian side of his family a little bit of
0: balance of both as most of us are right uh one of the things that's true about doug springsteen was that he suffered from depression and it wasn't as much talked about in those days as we talk about now so Bruce just knew that this is the way that dad is. And uh, at some point, and I'm not 100% sure, I'd have to go back and reread the book. But I know in the book he talks about that transition from that carefree kid to worried about dad or dad becoming an issue in the house. And uh, just real quick to talk about it. He talked about later in life, when his father moved to California, how he loved to see that his dad had found his happy place. It took him a long time. And one of the things that's clear about the book, and I just love that Bruce wrote it because it's going to help so many people who struggle with depression, just like Bruce Springsteen has in his life.
1: Seems hard to believe, but it's true. And they say it's hereditary. And, you know, talking about his father and the relationship that they had one of the things that I found very interesting, and in the book Born to Run, Bruce wrote it himself. He is a beautiful writer. Like Not only does he write beautiful songs, but he tells his story so beautifully. Poetically. And poetically. Yeah. that it's, I mean, it is. He is a fantastic writer, and he talked about his relationship with his father. He was a lot like his father, but his father yeah. until later wouldn't admit it and maybe never at all admitted that he and Bruce were very alike. Bruce's father, Doug, was a mama's boy, just like him, even though he would Uh never admit it. He was empathetic, he was emotional and sensitive, and that pissed his father off because he was the only boy and he was just like his dad, and he wanted that tough, Irish-bred, you know, skull-knocking Irish kid to work the factories.
0: And Most people, and that includes, I'd say, um, a lot of the Generation 1, Generation 2 Springsteen fans, Doug Springsteen comes onto our radar as a character in Bruce's songs. When he was playing early and he's doing songs about growing up, he starts telling the stories about coming home late at night and coming through the back screen door and it's dark in the kitchen. And all he can see is this glowing ember of his dad's cigarette and, and conflict would come because dad was struggling. Bruce didn't understand that. He was just a kid with long hair and a guitar or his dad used to call it that goddamn guitar. Yeah. He heard that a million times, and it was a part of his songs. That was part of him exercising all that I think, and those, especially in those early days. But he found other ways musically and in life uh, to get past it. And he had great support along the way, both uh, from his mom and from his family, and yeah. his wife and his kids. So, yeah. but. We're not going to get too deep into that because that is just one part of the equation. So that's how we got to know his dad. Yeah. And it wouldn't be until years later that he really spent more time talking about his mom. Uh, she'd become a regular attendee at his concerts. Uh, he even got her up dancing on stage at the Spectrum before they tore that place down. And the Spectrum, by the way, will come into play again, America's Showplace, here up, on yeah. the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Episode 25, All About Springsteen.
1: That boy from Freehold.
0: At some point, we all go through rebellion in our teenage years. And in Bruce's case, music was part of his escape, and it was part of his his path. He played guitar. He loved to play guitar. Probably drove people crazy with it, right? Just like so many that we know about. And along the way, and we're going to trace the path in just a little bit, um, live music and live performance has always been a big part uh, Bruce started playing, uh, in a bands that mattered while he was still in his teens. By the time he was 21, he already had almost a whole decade of experience playing live and playing in bars, even, you know, before he was 21. So we want to go through that because that's a big part of the story.
1: One of the other things that I found interesting reading the book was that after making enough money to buy his first guitar doing odd jobs, that was was the only non-music jobs he ever held in his entire life. As soon as he
0: got the money for the guitar, he stopped working the job.
1: This is the only job I'm ever going to have for the rest of my life. Yeah. He wasn't kidding.
0: And he made the commitment from those early days through his early bands, he made the commitment right up to the moment that he broke out on Born to Run, which is where we're going to cover up to on this episode, by the way. We're not going to try to do the whole story. We'd be here all day just doing one episode. <laughs> so, But he, he made that commitment in his head, and then he looked for like-minded individuals who had talent and fit the the in with the gang that he would develop as he developed his bands and and all the different permutations of what would become the Bruce Springsteen
1: Band. Yeah. He couldn't read music. He learned by both sound and reading chords. And so to play that way was a little bit of a challenge. I also think the fact that he came from such a poor upbringing, that was another wall that he had to climb over because he was poor. And I don't know if people realize when you're that poor how much harder success is for you And if you read his book, you see and you feel his struggles all the way through.
0: It's because you don't have any built-in advantages, any built-in edges. You have to create it all. And he is a guy who did all that on his own terms for the most part with very little that you would call compromise or adherence to norms. He just did it his way. And uh, that goddamn guitar got him pretty far, I think you'd say.
1: It also got him kicked out of his first band because <laughs> it was well, a crappy guitar. <laughs>
0: we're coming up on some really good stuff right there. I want to start almost at the end of this episode by talking about Mike Appel because it really this, his place in the story comes in along the way. But Mike engineered and produced uh, the early records, the first couple records. Uh, he was involved in the emergence of the anthem, Born to Run. They were in the studio working on the beginnings of what would become the Born to Run album. Now, around November 3rd, 1974, Mike was good at stirring stuff up. Let's just say that, okay? Yeah. Now, almost six months before the single Born to Run was released, he managed to get some solid mixes that weren't the final mix that's on the album into the hands. Uh, the number that I heard was about a dozen uh, radio station programmers. Of course, by then... Bruce had already become friends with Ed Shockey, who worked uh, afternoons at WMMR at that time. So I'm Ed Shockey. Have a good evening. We'll see you tomorrow at 3. And stay tuned for Luke O'Reilly. And if you're out there in Buffalo or anywhere else and you're Googling it, Shockey is spelled S-C-I-A-K-Y. So you'll find it that way. S-C-I-A-K-Y. Legend in Philadelphia radio. So, of course, as soon as Ed got it, he played it. And so did DJs in New York at WNEW and WMMS in Cleveland. WBCN in Boston, which had been a big town for Bruce all along. And one of the other ones was WVBR in Ithaca. And I bet there's a story behind why that small-town programmer decided he was going to be early on this Bruce Springsteen kid. But that's what Mike Capel did uh, in the middle of the, the heat of Breaking Born to Run. So they did what was essentially leaking the single, And his idea was to create demand for Born to Run, not having any idea how hot this single was going to be for a man who was already called the boss. Even the AM stations were playing it in key cities as the buzz spread because it was that
1: hot. I remember hearing it in the early days, and I remember the impact it had on me. I was never a huge Bruce person, but I remember hearing it on rock radio in its early days. I can't remember the exact time, but had a big impact and it changed rock and roll
0: well i mentioned ed shockey and we'll have more on ed later as we continue with episode 25 of the imbalanced history of rock and roll about that kid from freehold bruce springsteen Well, Marcus, we can't do this podcast without the help of our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, Pennsylvania. Yes, they've got the stuff, man. I'm telling you, the board has been
1: full, and it's really good stuff. A lot of new things, and all your favorites right there at Crooked Eye. Meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye by brewing at home. You get to meet the Crooked Eye crew. Yeah. And they make it fun every night. I really like the staff there. And while you're there, you're going to meet new people, which means you're going to make new friends. That's right.
0: Now... Last week, I went with two friends of mine who are home brewers, and they met Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin, who's all excited about what he's been doing to fill the board there at Crooked Eye, always full lately. And he's got a home brewers club that I didn't even know about that meets regularly. So find out about that and all the fun activities at Crooked Eye by going to crookedeyebrewery.com, and uh,
1: you'll see Jeff when you stop by. Great brews, great people, and fun times guaranteed. Next time you want a true craft brewery experience, Stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye.
0: Serving nightly in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price.
1: Let's dive into what we call Becoming Asbury.
0: I think it's clear what we mean, but really what we want to talk about is the live playing that Bruce did in his early days and kind of take you through uh, the early days and tours as we led up to what we talked about, the lawsuit with Mike Capel, which would put the brakes on Bruce and the E Street Band for a little while, but they couldn't be stopped. No, they couldn't.
1: They were a force to be reckoned with, and Bruce knew it.
0: He All right, knew it. the first recorded gigs for Bruce are in 1965, okay, yeah. <laughs> with a band called the Rogues. Yeah. And I don't know much about them because they didn't get much play yeah. in as far as the PR world. But his first real band, the Castiles, started playing out in August of 65, including two gigs. At that St. Rose of Lima school, which is just across the field from where the Springsteen household
1: was. Pretty cool, huh? Yep. and there was an older couple named Texan Marion who were hosting the Castiles at their apartment, letting them practice there. They were one of those unsung families or parents that were major impact or players in allowing these boys to develop their sound. And one of the things that I found interesting, one of the many things I found interesting in Born to Run was that the Stones were the blueprint for cool. They, to the white boys of Freehold, were the holy grail of rock and roll at that time period. And they had no idea. So 1965, and a young Bruce Springsteen
0: plays his first gig in Asbury Park. Uh, on july 25th and 26th they play at the town's rock and roll band contest held right downtown and that's the first spark of those two people asbury park i think of him as a person but asbury and bruce being bonded coming up soon after that their first gig in new york city at cafe Wa. what oh yeah jimmy wasn't the only one who got his start there in fact if you do the math I think Bruce was there maybe just around the same time as Jimmy. I don't know much. We got to dig into that. We
1: have to see if they ever played on the same nights as their bands together.
0: In November, they played there. Uh, Then they played twice in December. And in January uh, of '67, they played like a residency almost, a total of 24 shows at Cafe Wa with the Castiles. They fold into earth and no more gigs at Cafe Wa. I guess they like having the Castiles, right? Uh, they'd play places like the Hullabaloo in Freehold, uh, Off Broad Coffee House in Red Bank. They play a lot of places in Long Branch. Um, so Earth keeps going forward, but like I said, no gigs in New York City. The band morphs into Child, a band called Child, uh, and again they're back at the Hullabaloo. They start playing at the Upstage in Asbury, uh, the Pandemonium in Wanamasa. and their first foray to the South Jersey Shore, June seventh. 1969, they played in Margate. Wow.
1: That's just crazy.
0: Right around that time, they get their first gigs at the legendary Student Prince in Asbury Park. And they take their first trip to Virginia in September of 69 uh, and then go back for another visit just a couple months later in November. Their first little tour. Was yeah. Like, That's pretty sweet. Well, you think about it. why would, And I know there's a reason. Yeah. and Maybe we should dig into that for the future. But mm-hmm. um, they had a reason to go to Richmond. And they played a gig there. And they went well. So they brought them back. You yeah. know? But it was, it was a long ride. I
1: know. And you know, to get there, um they played a lot of like gigs for like the greasers as he talks about in his books and the rah rahs, which were the jocks and the cheerleaders, and a lot of the uh rich kid gigs after a lot of they earned their stripes. Yeah, a lot of school gigs. But like they played some like beach gigs. For the rich kids at some of the beaches, and the parents would be on the side getting hammered on martinis. Look, and you're the kids doing would what tri- you need to do. The rich kids would try to start fights with them because they looked like a bunch of band guys and they were very rock and roll. Big and obviously, mistake. those dudes were so afraid of them stealing their ladies that they were threatened by that. Well, the <laughs> momentum builds off
0: of all of that in November '69. They form Steel Mill. Now, this is a band that people point to all the time, but I've listened to some of their stuff that I've been able to find some videos online and some stuff online, and uh, it's just not a fully formed thing, but the guitar player sounded pretty good. So they start out, and they head back to Richmond. They do New Year's Eve in Richmond, so they're doing pretty good.
2: They really are.
0: And then they really expand the turf. They head west. Big Sur in California, they play at the Asailin Institute. They go to San Francisco. They play the Matrix in the Fillmore. They play gigs up in Marin. And then back to Virginia. Holy cow, it was like they really were on tour. And by summer of 70, they are back at the Jersey Shore. Ah. But they spent most of January at the upstage in Asbury, which was becoming a regular haunt for them. They become, you love this, the Sundance Blues Band. That didn't last long. And then they became Dr. Zoom and the Sonic Boom. But in July of 1971, it had to happen, folks. They start calling it the Bruce Springsteen Band with lots of Asbury gigs at the Student Prince and the upstage. In 72, uh, they start covering the same ground with an occasional New York gig. You know, they're doing the, the Virginia and the Jersey Shore. But in 1972, May 2nd, all the touring they've been doing, all the stuff they've been doing earns them a an audition at CBS Records with the great John Hammond.
1: Bruce Springsteen, Columbia Pop Audition, job number 79682, Mary Queen of Arkansas, take one.
0: The next day, May 3rd, 1972, my 14th birthday, Bruce records those legendary demos at CBS Studios and is signed shortly thereafter by Clive Davis and John Hammond, to Columbia Records, where he's been all through his entire career. While working on uh, the Greetings Band, he played two shows a day at Max's Kansas City in New York City, trying to hone their chops there. And, you know, look at the band he had, man but David Sanchez on keyboards Vinny the Mad Dog and then the core of the band that would remain with them Gary W. Talon on the bass Danny Federici on the uh, organ and of course the big man Clarence Clemens and they just honed the shit out of their shit at those residencies that they started doing they got their first gig September 4th at the Bitter End a a legendary club uh, down near the Bowery uh, where they made a lot of noise there's a couple bootlegs out of some of those Bitter End shows that are unbelievable Well, in October, it's officially the start of the Greetings from Asbury Park tour. Uh, They have their first gigs in Pennsylvania. Yay! Westchester. Sorry, Bill. They play at York College, and they also play um, on the same day uh, at the 615 Club out there. 1973 rolls along, and there it is. After all that he'd been doing, Bruce's first album is released on January 5th, and it kind of played to the hype that he was the young Bob Dylan. If you think of some of the wordsmithing that he did, uh, the way he worked words together, the way he did rhythm and couplets and phrasing, really there was a similar feel to it. But there were other songs, Spirit in the Night, Blinded by the Light, For You, Growing Up,
1: that showed more of a unique artist than just the young Bob Dylan. He had the long songs. He had the short songs like Spirit in the Night. He was a poet. Yeah, He really wrote beautiful stories. He told beautiful stories in his songs, and that's really hard to do. And Hard to Be a Saint in the City
0: got Bowie's attention, and that's going to come up in a little bit, uh, where the two intersect with Bowie uh, starting to admire this new kid, Bruce Springsteen. So here we go. On the road. It's the first stand of eight shows at the main point in Bryn Mawr. Legendary. Then... A similar residency, a stand at Paul's Mall in Boston. That's where some great bootlegs were uh, recorded. Fourteen shows. They play at Villanova University on January 16th, 1973. Villanova. Then they take a road trip to Chicago. Then it's back to Max's Kansas City in New York. Then it's back to California, including the L.A. debut at the Troubadour. Oh, my goodness first gigs at Berkeley, San Jose, Seattle, Vancouver, and Phoenix. You see it's starting to happen and the gigs improve. College dates on the East Coast. This is all in 73. Four more shows at the main point. Finally, he stops driving by DC and does a show there. June 6th, 1973, Bruce Springsteen is on stage at the Philadelphia Air Condition Spectrum opening for Chicago now it's not uncommon for a young band on a label to get put on tour with a big band on the label sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but do you know what happened at this show
1: I at the spectrum show yeah I have no idea he Philadelphia fell in love with him and immediately worshiped him and he was better than Chicago that night
0: impatient for the arrival of their favorite band Chicago fans began to boo whoa and uh, there's one report that Bruce flipped the bird to the crowd while he continued to soldier on through and uh, make it his way through a set. And I'm sure uh, it's kind of funny to him at this point as uh, as he celebrates his 70th birthday. By the <laughs> way, we're releasing this on Bruce's 70th birthday. Happy birthday, boss!
1: Happy birthday, boss! Is it-
0: But that tour with Chicago also leads to his first gigs at Boston and Madison Square Gardens. Two nights at Madison Square Garden for a kid from Jersey. Shit, man. Are you kidding? His whole family was there. It was quite a year, and the gigs got better. November 11th, 1973, he releases The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Sweet Jesus in the Morning. It is just one of the greatest albums ever and I was listening to it just before we you got here to do the uh, podcast here at our Northern Studios. our <laughs> Northern Philly Studios. <laughs> and, um, and the last notes of New York City Serenade faded, and I turned off the iPod. When you think of Bruce and... Uh, music for down the shore you think of Sandy when you want a party you think of the E Street shuffle uh, there's thoughtful insights about the urban landscape which he would continue to explore on songs like incident and Rosalita in New York City serenade
1: I also noticed on that second album the songs are a lot longer like he wrote a few songs that were more radio friendly I guess you would call them at that time they were more pop friendly like spirit in the night which was a shorter one blinded by the light which was a little shorter they were within the three three and a half minute vein, and then you look at this second album, and you've got five, seven, nine I minute songs, songs, and yeah. they're beautiful. Yeah. And they're perfect, and they're the way an album should be recorded. And it forced his real
0: Die Hard Radio fans to re-examine what they were doing. Um and so many of them would never play Rosalita unless they played Incident First. Um they were playing uh Kitty's Back, even though it was seven plus, mm-hmm. right? So People were finding their way, and of course, every 4th of July, you break out the one about Sandy. Yep. <laughs> now, through that period, right after release, he was uh, kind of rotating between the main point, Oliver's in Boston, Max's Kansas City in New York, and my father's place on Long Island. So he'd do a stand, shut it down, move over. I guess it started to be better to do that. And the gigs
1: improved.
0: You're listening to The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll with me, Ray Coob, and my partner in crime,
1: Marcus in the Darkest.
0: And here is the turning point in our story, buddy. January 8th, 1974, they head into the studio. Bruce is going to record two songs. This new thing he wrote called Jungle Land and what he thinks may be his, one of his best songs yet in Born to Run. He spent a
1: lot of time working on Born to Run, like six months alone on that song.
0: They say that that album and uh, that song became the bellwether for his perfectionist tendencies. And it did. It took a while. And I guess that's why Mike Appel couldn't wait. And ultimately, he leaked the single early. And uh, he wasn't wrong, right?
1: He was very right.
0: Jungle Land takes a lot think about it it's going to take a while because you've got all these different parts you've got orchestration and it's all got to work just right so that's going to take a little while and that forces them to focus on born to run in march they hit the road they take their first trip ever to texas playing houston and austin and dallas back to their home base They're doing local gigs at colleges all over the place, but in the Philly area, they played Ursinus, Swarthmore, and Bucks County Community College, Wow! where he played with Chick Corea. And are you ready for a big what? They also played a show at Archbishop Carroll High School. It's a Catholic high school here in Philly. What? All I gotta say is the class of '74, Carol must have been pretty cool.
1: Apparently. <laughs> oh wow!
0: Summertime and it's back to the beach. They head down to LBI—that's Long Beach Island—for the Philly area Jersey Shore goers, and they play at Spray Beach, which is a beach I go to every summer. So Bruce was playing like right in the hood there on uh, in Beach Haven area.
1: He did a, an incredible job building up a fan base in this area, by- doing those small gigs like a brilliant job yeah
0: it really built it brick by brick then they take their first trip to memphis because you know elvis and they get their first gig at the bottom line talk about a place where they would uh get a lot of work and also create legendary uh bootleg shows there at the bottom line september 8th 1974 write it down marcus my dear friend that is the first time that Bruce Springsteen appears at this new club in town called the Stone Pony. Oh, what? All <laughs> well, we
2: want to know, yeah. what want to know this is what are you people doing in my town? Right on. And now, let us have a warm, warm, I make that hot, hot welcome. Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. <laughs>
1: that was a new
0: club then? It was it had only been open a couple months, and Southside Johnny's band, which was before the Asbury Jukes was playing, so he went in to play with his buddy. You know, he was already becoming a star in Asbury, and that created the uh, the bond with the Stone Pony that still lasts till, through to today. He had one sequence, and I'm going to tell you about this. And it's think about it. He had one night at the main point in Bryn Mawr, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. And the next night, he played at the Tower Theater, which, if you don't know, Philadelphia holds about 2,500, 3,000 people. From the club to the theater in one night. The gigs were getting better.
1: That's a big jump.
0: Also in the mix along the line is February 5th, 1975, a legendary live broadcast on 93.3
1: WMMR at the main point hosted by ed shockey
0: and it became um one of those things having a copy of that if you had recorded it that night or you had friends people were copying and swapping that tape for years and it's it's legendary night you sweated the place up man but the gigs improved avery fisher hall in new york the capitol theater in passaic two more shows at the tower oh yeah another couple college shows in philly Camden County College, Westchester, in a series of events that are part of Philly Springsteen lore. And this is part of why we have to talk about Philadelphia. Bill up there in Buffalo. This is why, because it's part of the (laughs) history. True story involving Ed Shockey, Philly rock radio legend. And uh, it all happened around uh, November 25th. 1974 so after all that last sequence ed invites bruce to stay at his place uh here for a few days by the way that couch where bruce slept is still out there somewhere somebody owns that yes they do i know And she's gonna put her hand up i'm I'm pretty sure i know who still has it or who had it last so uh but it's still out there
1: send us a picture of that couch it
0: was kind of like Hey, Bruce, come on down, stay and hang for a couple days. Judy and um, Ed were joined at their hip their whole life, and they were a great pair of hosts. So they would be making their way around town. So, hey, Bruce, just come. We're going to go do this stuff. Oh, hey, you want to go meet David Bowie? Because he had just been working on Hard to Be a Saint in the City. He's working over at Sigma Sound at 12th and Arch, the legendary studio which is no longer in business. But he was working on Young Americans there. So they go down to see Bowie at Sigma. Can you imagine the atmosphere in the room? There are pictures.
1: Yeah, Ed Bowie and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, There has to be audio on the of them three on the radio or something. There
0: has to be. There's not on the radio, but if there's any audio, it's from tapes out of those sessions in yeah. the booth. But uh, Bowie had been working on Hard to Be a Saint in the City but hadn't yet finished it, so he didn't want to play it for Bruce. Bruce was cool with that. He was just hanging out and meeting David Bowie. So that night, later on, Ed and Bruce head down to South Philly to the Philadelphia Air Conditioned Spectrum to see David Bowie perform live.
1: That's just crazy.
0: But wait, Marcus, there's more. After the show, there's a late show at the Academy of Music. Ed takes Bruce up Broad Street to go see the late show with Janice Ian and Billy Joel. What?
1: A late show in Philly? What, it start like at midnight?
0: No, I think it was earlier than that, but still, they get there in time. They see Bowie. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it was 11, 30, 12 o'clock, but they got to see mm-hmm. Bowie, and then they go uptown, and and they see Janice and Billy and they all meet backstage. And yes, there are pictures of oh them all goodness. backstage on that night. Ed was pretty good about getting pictures of these things when they were happening. He knew what he knew what the scene was and he knew what that people would want to say it. So you figure that's the story, right? <laughs> no. No. There's more. After that, Bruce and Ed are hungry. So they hit a local diner uh, with Billy, who decided he was coming with him. He's going to join them. And they walk in, and Ed Ed is friends with a guy that's huger than huge, kind of epitomizes AC radio. Jingle writer. That's right. It was a great jingle writer, too. Barry Manilow is at the diner that they go to. So they all have a late supper together. Now, just picture that. Ed, in his glory, because his pal Barry Manilow, and his new pal Billy Joel just met Bruce Springsteen, his buddy who he's joined at the hip with. Can you imagine being at the diner and going, I, 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 "Is that Barry Manilow? with they yeah. Oh yeah. Who are those other guys? <laughs> who are those other guys? <laughs> well, at that point, I don't think uh, I think Bruce was starting to get more well known, and Billy was just before he had had broken out. Yeah. So they're That's all hanging surreal. around. It's crazy. That is so surreal. The next surreal. day, the next day, since Bruce is visiting Ed. Yeah. They slide by Rittenhouse Square and they go to visit 933 WMMR. And uh, Bruce cuts a Christmas greeting. We still play it every once in a
1: while around Christmas.
0: True story Ed Shockey, a Philly legend who helped a ton of rock stars become rock stars. And this is a true story from uh, uh, many sources over the years, including Ed himself. So, But we're not done yet. <laughs> Bruce closes out 74 and starts 75 at the Stone Pony and closes out the Wild and the Innocent Tour March 9th, 1975 in D.C., and the gigs got better. You're enjoying this, aren't I'm you? I'm totally
1: enjoying this. This is amazing because you really feel his slow, steady, hard-working climb. You feel it.
0: Well, they started to get some options and their turf expanded with trips to New Orleans and a stand at the Roxy in LA again that becomes recorded and becomes
1: a bootleg. Lot old Bruce Bootleg. Are
0: you ready for the first trip abroad? Because Bruce and his band certainly are. They go to London and play the Hammersmith Odeon, over to Stockholm and Amsterdam. Oh yeah. And then back to London before returning home to wrap the year with four shows at the Tower Theater, including an afternoon takeover at 93.3 WMMR. Holy cow. That's how they said it back then.
1: <laughs> yep. Philadelphia. And the gigs improved and spread to pretty much everywhere after that. It's incredible how he grew and how they really, really paid their dues. They I mean, did. I don't, I, I, I don't know what to say because... There was a bootleg
0: that was called Paid the Cost to Be the Boss and he definitely did they did and and Dude. they did it wasn't always pretty it wasn't always I mean they'd be the first ones to tell you there are a lot of times when they were you know basically slumming it to get to the next gig barely having mm-hmm. what they, they needed to, to keep it going and they just kept going
1: and going and going there was no other option for Bruce this is what he was gonna do it no matter what cost like
0: Michael Monroe dead jail or rock and roll
1: yeah exactly and that's exactly how Bruce was but it's you know, the dedication and the fact that they made their knuckles bleed the way they did makes it even more impressive and more American in so many ways. So that
0: summer, that single uh, Born to Run is out there burning up the airwaves. I remember driving to pick up my girlfriend in my mom's 69 Ford station wagon only had an AM radio. Famous 56 WFIL pops on Born to Run, it's Bruce Brinkley. I almost shit myself. I almost broke the speaker of the car, too, because Bruce was finally on the straight radio stations. It was so cool. Because
1: I remember hearing Born to Run first, and that was on the FM Rock station in Denver, Colorado at that time.
0: Excitement builds through the summer. The official single release happens and in August 25th, 1975, the Born to Run album, that masterpiece, is released. It wouldn't take long before the buzz would really go to a whole new level. Weeks later... He appeared on the covers of Time and Newsweek
1: at the same time. That's just crazy for a young artist like that. For any artist. It really was unprecedented. I don't know what to say at that point. I mean, I'm learning so much about Bruce and just his rise and, and the fact that he had such an impact the way he did. But he was also a crossover artist, not only rock and roll, people in pop liked him. Yeah. The soul, the r and B. I I mean, he grew up playing a lot of doo-wop and soul and a lot of instrumental surf music as well. So he kind of had that huge background and all kinds of music influenced him.
0: Absolutely. And that's what came out, especially on those first two records. But now he was becoming the man he was supposed to be in terms of rock and roll. Uh, but at the same time, trouble was brewing with his manager and his friend, Mike Capel. They had a pretty good relationship. And as success began, Bruce didn't quite, it didn't quite compute why his bank account wasn't growing. And he knew that Mike's was, and it created tensions and it created problems. And they went out on what the band termed the Chicken Scratch Tour. And the, the nickname, which bands sometimes will nickname their tours afterwards, right? Or Doring. And I think the name belied the tensions between Bruce and Mike. And they did some uh, summer regional home shows, you know, around the area. And then what they called the Lawsuit Tour, which went into 1977. And, And while there was a gap between Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, the records, the band kept earning and playing as much as they could during the lawsuit, which would sever his ties with Mike Capel. Yeah, that was pretty messy. Reading about that, just well, you got to look back to see how it came to be. Back in '71, he'd been working with the, You talked about him having the the rehearsals at the grandparents' house yes. and places opening up. People open up their place to him. Uh, he had that kind of working relationship with Carl Tinker West. He was the manager of some of the early bands, Child and Steel Mill, and the Bruce Springsteen band. He referred Bruce to Appel, and he auditioned for him. He told him to come back when he had written more songs. And when he came back in 72, he heard the songs that he liked. It was the beginning of what would become Greetings, signed Springsteen to a production contract, and got Springsteen the audition with John Hammond, which led to him meeting Clive and signing with Columbia. He produced the first two albums and had production credits on uh, Born to Run as well, especially in regards to the single. But when you see that you're selling records... When you see, and he didn't see it at first because the first two records didn't really sell that many copies outside of the New York and Philadelphia areas. It began to change in the pockets where he became popular. And then with Born to Run, it was really, really clear. So that led to this sue me, sue you, fuck you, fuck everybody kind of a, a thing. And these guys had been friends. And uh, along the way, he met a guy named John Landau. John's the guy who coined the phrase, I have seen the future of rock and roll, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Now, that'll get you bonded to a writer real quick. Oh, yeah. And by then, he was really becoming his advisor, and Bruce wanted him as manager. So basically, part of the legal wrangling was upheld. Appell- filing an injunction to keep them from recording records until the suit was settled because he wanted his piece of the pie and Bruce would tell you Mike did a lot for him and I think they still sat down at the end to sign the deal that settled the lawsuit what what occurred kind of is explanatory about the relationship they had because they were hanging out a couple buddies and they started drinking and and Bruce talks about reaching for the pen to sign when they were all drunk I guess and Mike actually stops him he goes I want it but not like this. Look, when you know you're making money and you only see one tenth of it in your bank account, you gotta go where you gotta go and do what you gotta do to get your life back, to get your songs back, to get your music back, to get your money that you've already mm-hmm. earned. So sue me, sue you, sue everybody. And they finally settle it. And that allowed Bruce to move forward and start thinking about how he was going to use the eighty plus songs that he had written while he was sitting around unable to record. And those songs and the characters in them would spill out over the next few albums, Darkness on the Edge of Town and the River most prominently, but also later on, because Bruce was out there experiencing America. He was still touring. band was still going. You know, they made the change uh, around uh, Born to Run that included uh, David Sanchez leaving the band, so they found Roy Bitten, which was extremely lucky. Uh, they also... Um, got Max Weinberg in the band because Ernest Boom Carter is actually the drummer on the album and the version that was released early to radio of Born to Run. That's Ernest Boom Carter. And I don't know what the reasons were, but I guess based on the way he plays that as soon as Bruce heard Max Weinberg, that was it. He was in and he's, he's in for life.
1: Yep. It's, you know, the, the evolution of how the band became what we know them as is pretty fascinating. I don't know why Vinny Mad Dog Sanchez was, uh, Removed from the band, the, there were many the, the rig, stories. Was it rigors of the life on the road? Because sometimes that, it nearly...
0: they didn't call him the Mad Dog for nothing. Okay, so <laughs> I think that's part of it. And uh, but yeah, life burn, on the road burns you out, and if you're not getting there, especially, it felt like they weren't getting there. And he and, may have had
1: a family. And who knew?
0: And, and who knew that that Max Weinberg was sitting somewhere in the wings that you didn't know about until you started looking for him. Okay. And that's the East Street band that's uh, that we know and love, except. Of course, you know, along the way, there's been additions and we lost Danny and we lost the big man, but it still rolls on, but it all started with a little 10 year old kid from Freehold, New Jersey, having an idea that it might be fun,
1: that rock and roll might be a life and deciding that's what he wanted to do his entire life.
0: It is The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, episode number 25, and uh, I gotta tell you, man, it's just sometimes the way things work out with us in this podcast that we could release it On Bruce's 70th birthday is just rock and roll kismet, synchronicity, whatever
2: you want to call it, man. No
1: kidding. That's total rock and roll juju at its finest. And it's been fun learning about Bruce Springsteen, and I can't wait to dig in deeper to who he is, who he was, and really find out more detail about What shaped the sound that we get? And he still consistently puts out great music, great albums.
0: Look, we're running longer than we like to and normally do, but we're going to let it play because the first chapter, this is just the first part of what is probably a four or five part podcast. Easily. So we'll tighten it up. We do the tighten up Tighten it up Tighten that up And which Bruce really loved uh, We're going to talk about his live shows We're going to talk about the different phases of his career And all I can tell you is for this kid Growing up in the Philadelphia area uh, The love for Bruce Springsteen And the E Street Band Is unequaled There are so many bands I love dearly, dearly But these guys, they're from here yeah. We help make them guys
1: They're heroes to this area They are heroes And the guy who stirs the drink, holds it all
0: together, and makes it all happen, Bruce Springsteen. Happy 70th birthday from the
1: imbalanced history of rock and roll.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football